0: Hello,
1: and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics and history. I'm your host, Sean Gillery. I'm going to forgo a commentary this week because today's interview is longer than usual. I'm pleased to welcome Mark Basson to the podcast to talk about his new book, The Gumilov Mystique, Biopolitics, Eurasianism, and the Construction of Community in Modern Russia. Basson's book is a journey into the thought of the Soviet historian and ethnologist Lev Gumilov. Gumilov's theories of ethnicity and narrative of Russian history are today one of the main intellectual pillars of Eurasianism, as espoused by Alexander Dugin. But his influence doesn't end there. Putin praised Gumilov's extraordinary talents and the unique impact of his ideas, which he apparently has adopted. For example, in his annual address in 2012, Putin stated the following, I would like all of us to understand clearly that the coming years will be decisive. Who will take the lead and who will remain on the periphery and inevitably lose their independence will depend not only on the economic potential, but primarily on the will of each nation on its inner energy, which Lev Gumilov termed "passionarnost," the ability to move forward and to embrace change. Mark Basson is a professor in the School of History and Contemporary Studies at Södertörn University in Stockholm. His most recent book is The Gumilov Mystique, Biopolitics, Eurasianism, and the Construction of Community in Modern Russia. Here's Mark Basson, So your book, The Gumilov Mystique, is looking at the thought of Lev Gumilov. Why don't we start by having you explain who he was and what are some significant aspects of his biography?
0: Well, Lev Nikolaevich Gumilov was born in 1912. A very important element of who he was is his parents, because he was the son of two of the great Russian modernist poets of the Silver Age, Nikolai Stepanovich Gumilov, his father, and, uh, of course, Anna Akhmatova, that was his mother. So just by that fact of birth, in a sense, it stamped and almost, you could almost say in certain ways, determined very important elements of his early life. But when I say early, I mean into middle age, and then never really left him for different reasons. The fact of his parents and who they were as people and their position uh, in the Soviet system was important. Also, of course, he was a very gifted writer. He He had definitely had a strong literary gift. And that also one can think of as having been inherited from his from his parents. He was born in 1912. His father and his mother had almost the marriage was almost ending by the time he was born. His father left the house. His father then Nikolai Gumilyov went on. He uh, was part. He was a uh, participant in World War One, and then was unsympathetic to the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. Although he did play certain diplomatic roles for the government, but he was arrested in 1920 and was, uh, as a, a part of a conspiracy, a fabricated pretext, and was executed then. So Kumlija's father was executed, which had quite an impact on him, of course, emotionally, as his father was gone. He didn't know his father very well, but he certainly had had you know had spent some time with him. He was very shattered by that. But it also meant that his father was a counter-revolutionary, having been executed in this manner by the Cheka. That influenced then his youth because he was stigmatized in a very official way, not just a... This was a very official stigma, st- stigma that he had to live with. It affected his schooling, his opportunities, and so on. His mother, Anna khmatova left him also very early in his life. She went to uh, develop her own career in Leningrad eventually, and he was left with his maternal grandmother in on the, the Gumilyov estate. Gumilyov was a minor aristocrat, so he had a, an estate, which was another problem for him after the revolution, of course. So he was left with his, his grandmother, who he was very close to, and his mother almost never visited. She rarely wrote and came, I think, only on two occasions until the late 1920s when he finally joined her in, in Leningrad. And so this was very difficult for him, a very difficult childhood. And then, of course, he was had to suffer poverty in the countryside and the stigma uh, from his father of, of being a, an enemy of the people, uh, effectively. And nevertheless, uh, that was, was what it was. So he joined his mother in 1929. She, by that time, was with her third husband, Nikolai Punin, the art critic. Punin was not very happy that, uh, apparently, we, we sort of learn now, was not very happy with this. They lived in a communal apartment under very difficult so they only had a room themselves with Gumilyov, the son. There was really nowhere for him to sleep. He had difficulties. He wanted to continue his studies. He was just finishing and wanted to enroll in the university by that time. But again, he found it difficult being the son of a, of a counter-revolutionary. And he was, I think the term they used was Lyshenitsk. Vishenius, which was someone who did, by law, did not have rights to education and so on. So what Gumlyov did in the early years, he was trying to enroll, and he joined, this is the early years of the first five-year plans, and they were geological expeditions and scientific expeditions that they were sending out in great frenzy to all parts of the country. And on these expeditions, the criteria you needed uh, were not very high in terms of the qualifications you brought. They weren't looking very carefully at your background because they just needed people to do this. So he went on a number of expeditions. Maybe this is what stimulated an early interest of his in remote parts of the country. And he formed already at this point certain connections with people, the leaders, that would be important for him later in his life. So he was then able eventually to enroll in the Department of History at Leningrad University. He did well, but he had difficulties. He was arrested on a number of occasions Till at the end of the decade in 1938, he was arrested for the third time finally and was not released. And this then was his first prison uh, experience. Pretext was, he was said, he was part of a monarchist group of students. He felt very strongly that this arrest was due to his simple biography of being a son of his father. He thought his father uh, was very important in this case. He was sent initially to the Belamor Canal to work there. He, they decided after a couple of months that this was an insufficiently severe punishment. So he was recalled to Leningrad. And as he tells the story, they wanted to execute him. But the pro- his prosecutor at that moment himself was arrested and executed. <laughs> I mean, right. we, sh- we shouldn't laugh, I suppose. But I mean, that's the way, you know, he tells well, it's he, the topsy turvy. Yes, exactly. <laughs> he thought that, that was very funny. So because of that, he escaped and he was given five years in the camp. They were just building at that time in Timir Peninsula uh, at Narilsk. He was one of the first people to go there. Extraordinarily difficult, utter, 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 utter uh, lack of any development or infrastructure and very difficult. So he spent five years there. He made in the camps, this was always very important for Gumilyov, uh, he made a number of acquaintances, some very important ones, people who helped him, other scholars who helped him develop his thinking. He then left. He was released in 1943. He immediately enlisted in the army and followed the Red Army west as it advanced across Europe and actually took part in the occupation of Berlin. And then he came back to uh, Leningrad now, joined his mother again, went back to the university. There was a certain toleration for Akhmatova in the immediate post-war, but then, of course, Zhdanov, she came under a cloud again, and Zhdanov made this infamous denunciation. I think it was 1940 six or 47, half nun, half harlot, denunciation of Akhmatova. So she was under a cloud, and then now he gets arrested again, just as he's about to submit, or immediately after he submitted his candidate thesis in the Department of History in 1948 or 49. He's arrested and now, uh, once again, sent off to prison camp, this time in western Siberia, uh, around Omsk, and then he was in Karaganda and in Kazakhstan for some time as well. And this, he says, is for his mother. So he thinks about these two terms he spent in prison, and he talks about, you know, adinschrok za papa, Shrok za mama. You know, one for his first was for his father, his second for his mother. Now, what happened, just to uh, finish this story, uh, Stalin died in 1953, and there was a general amnesty in the, that went through the camps. Gumilyov was not eligible for this amnesty because he was the, again, because of his parentage, he was in a different category of convict, slightly. And I don't think that affected his treatment, which was sort of uniformly bad, but it did affect his eligibility, so he was not released. And he began to become quite paranoid about how strongly his mother was advocating for his release. And this comes out of the correspondence now, people who knew him. We, we have a lot of information about this. And he felt very, very strongly and became increasingly bitter that his mother was not interceding effectively enough. Well, she was, she definitely was interceding. And this is a point of great contention. Anyway, he was released eventually in 1956. So he came back. He joined his mother and went back. No, he, by the, he had finished his uh, education by that time. He got a job, uh, in 50, in the late 50s at the Ermitage. Where an old mentor of his, a professor, but also someone he had been on expeditions with, Mikhail Artamonov, who was the head of the Hermitage at that time, gave him a job in the library. He worked there till the early 60s when he got a job. He came to Leningrad State University where he was a scientific researcher, Nauchny Satrutnik in the department, the Faculty of Geography. And he stayed in that role until he retired, until the 1980s. But his, but his, his biography is very important. And just to emphasize, I mean, the parentage, his these his parents and, the, and their political problems became very much his political problems. And he always felt that his the persecutions and the 13 years, eventually, that he spent in the Gulag was attributable to them.
1: So before we get into some of the, what his thought was, what his theories were, and its significance, what impact do you think that life experience had on the development of his theoretical uh, worldview of, of Russian history and geography and ethnicity?
0: Well, I think it had a very strong influence on his personality. He was a very difficult person and a very paranoid person. And I, and that had to do, I think that becomes slightly more understandable or even a lot more understandable if we understand the circumstances that he developed until into his, into his forties. In terms of his ideas, it's a little bit harder to say. People point to the, the fact that the camps, I mean, I don't know so much about the sort of social history of the gulag, but apparently one of the organizing strategies of the camp administration was to divide convicts by ethnicity that ethnicity played a great role uh, formally in terms of where they, how they were organized, how they were treated, and certainly on a subjective level, the idea, so sort of the ethnic identification of these very intensely international communities of, of the, of the convicts was very important. And it's been suggested, Gumuliov himself didn't talk too much about it, but it has been suggested that this has got him thinking a little bit about the key role of ethnic, of ethnicity, ethnic identity in the way people operate in the way people behave.
1: Let Let's talk about that then. What What is the, some of the basic key concepts of his thought? His thought and its significance. Like, why is he a figure that deserves not only so much attention but also academic study?
0: well I, I have a sort of a particular view of him, which is not one that usually people who write books like I did have, and that is that i i, I don't think of him as a great thinker. He compared himself to Marx and he is compared if you look at what they say Marx to Marx and to Einstein and Spengler and things like that, and people like that I don't share that view i don't i I'm not that impressed. With his uh, body of thought, it's interesting and it's very fascinating in its Soviet context. But what is uh, post-Soviet context? What is significant, or what makes him so important? I think is the reception that he's gone through. That is the the interest and the engagement and the appreciation and the and the uh, acceptance that he's been able to get during his lifetime which is significant but much more so since he's died and the fact that people embrace him now certainly today it was always the case but very clear today for very different reasons they're very for very contradictory reasons and he appeals to constituencies and to audiences who themselves are are very much in, in conflict and at, at odds so he's a very beguiling figure from that standpoint but it has a lot to do with his reception so most of the book, that I wrote is uh, really about the context, both in the Soviet period and the post-Soviet period, as opposed to just trying to detail his his theories. And, and so, well, just to, to give people a
1: sense of what those theories are, what are some of those main elements of his thought that people are so attracted to?
0: He's difficult. It's part of the reason that he's so popular is because he writes so much, you know, and about so many different things. and people pick up on different things. Let me just begin a little bit methodologically uh, where he was, and then I'll talk about the the different sort of thematic lines that he followed. Because Gubalyov's whole approach. And it was very typical. And, and this is something maybe I didn't, as I reflect now a little bit, having finished the manuscript, and it's out, of, out of my control, I, I think maybe I could have even emphasized a little bit more clearly. That is, Gubiljof, from a, from an epistemological standpoint, was part of a generation of post-Stalinist uh, scholars. Basically, late 1960s, 1970s, who were very, and this was not only in the Soviet Union. It's quite interesting because it, it, this is not only in, in in Russia that this was happening. These are uh, this was a, a healthy infusion of what you might call scientism in the social and nat and the human sciences. The idea that somehow studies in these areas could be based on a kind of scientific approach. Uh, in Gombeljov's case, it was this notion of biology, and zoology, and what the natural, the models, and the theories of natural science that could be important in the understanding the way society operates. This is what was going on in the, 19, in the Soviet Union as well. They were very interested in this stuff. Cybernetics was a field that was developing. So this is all a type of hard or natural scientific approach to understanding problems of society. And this is where Gumilyov was coming from, and all of his work was written in this spirit. And in a sense, that had, you know, that for his, for his Soviet audience, that was a very powerful uh, and innovative approach. And not only his, I mean, this was, this was common in the Soviet Union. He was, happened to be a particularly influential example of it. Now, thematically, Gumilyov, Again, he's difficult to generalize about because he wrote so much, but he's, he, he basically, I think in terms of what he wrote about Russia, if I can limit myself maybe to just, just his relevance for Russia, which I think will be most interesting for your, uh, for the audience here. He really wrote about two different things. On the one hand, he was very concerned about the nature of ethnicity, and, and this was a common Preoccupation in the Soviet Union. They had all the problem of nationality had always been a problem. There had always been an issue from the time of the revolution. It's a multinational empire. What do you do with all these nationalities after after the end of the empire and the new system? How do you accommodate them? You know, do you integrate them? Do you recognize them? Do you say their ethnicity, the nationality is no longer important? There are new priorities. You know, th- these were debates that were going on. And in the post-Stalinist period, this was being rethought afresh. And there was a great movement to try to create a theory and indeed a scientific theory of ethnicity. And so Gumilyov was try- tried to develop a theory of ethnicity. And in brief, he tried to argue In the spirit of what I've just said, in the sort of sociobiological spirit, he tried to argue that ethnic groups – or he did argue that ethnic – ethnicity is a natural feature. It is a biological function. Um, And and ethnic groups, ethnicities, ethnicity in uh, in the human population are – are biological groups that have a biological similarity. So this was an argument that he made. And then he developed out of this – he developed an extremely intricate theory of the nature of this biology and what it meant in terms of the way individuals operated, how the group operated, and very importantly, how the groups then related to each other. So that's one line of thinking is his ethnist theory. The other line then is what he, he was writing as a historian. Uh, his early work had been – that's why I wanted to limit this to Russia because he wrote a great deal about non-Russian questions to store about what he would call the, the history of the steppe. The history of the Great Steppe, the history of the Eurasian Steppe. So he wrote about uh, China. He wrote about the Xiongnu people and their connections with the, the Han Dynasty. And in the in the East, he wrote uh, uh, several books about the, the Turkish, the Ashina dynasties in the seventh and the eighth centuries. This is the ancient the the Gok Turk dynasties. But he also wrote about Russia. And in, in writing about Russia, he tried to explain. He tried to use his theories of ethnicity. To try to explain effectively the evolution of Russian history. Because his argument was that each ethnic group goes through a natural life cycle of, and he dated it, it's about 1,500 years. It goes through a natural life cycle, and we understand then the whole ex- life experience of the group in terms of this standard life cycle, and it would go through different phases. He had this very specific set of phases, and the the energy in the group goes up and then it goes down. And this is translated in English as Gumilyov's graph.
1: Do you think that this idea of ethnic groups going through a particular historical journey, does this coincide with one, positivism, right? But also uh, almost a a Marxist teleology or Marxist epistemology?
0: Well, Gumilyov is undoubtedly a a hyper-positivist. Uh, This was, again, you'll recognize this was true for the Soviet Union. Gumilyov was only, in a sense, an example of a particular Soviet approach to analysis, which is very, very positivistic. That goes without saying. Another, another interesting aspect of Gumilyov, which is quite important for his, for for the Soviet period, and that is that he was very faithful to Marx. And again, he was part of the interest of the group I talked about a few minutes ago that had this, the scientistic approach and this emphasis on science was trying in a way to find an alternative way of looking at Marx, and they try to graft Marx then onto this type of a perspective. And this is exactly what he was doing. So he was very faithful, and I talk in my book a lot about the kind of the, his contortions as he tries to demonstrate how genuinely Marxist his thinking and his theories are. But in terms of the life cycle that you ask about, I don't know that this is not Marxist because this is a circular. He and he was very clear about this. This is a circular life cycle. It's repeated. So in his book, when if you look at his book, uh, the Ethnogenesis and the Earth's Biosphere, it's published finally published in 1989, uh, written uh, about 15 years before then. Um, he talks about and he's, which is where he describes in the most detail these different ethnic theories that he has. He talks indifferently about. He'll talk about the Sumerians. He'll talk about the the Ashina Turks in the Middle Ages. He'll talk about the Russians today. It doesn't matter when they are, because all of these groups are going through the same life cycle. This was just one natural process. He drew a, conf- a distinction theoretically between ethnos that is the community, an ethnic community, and a social community. He said they were different. The, and he said the ethnos you see, is natural. This is based on biology, as I said. Whereas the social, the society, objstvot, is not biological. And the Obsthstva then, he was quite happy to understand in various standard Marxist terms as going through these sort of uh, means of production and then going through these historical this, – this, 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 these linear patterns of historical development.
1: Gumilov had, had an interesting understanding of, of Russian history, to put it diplomatically. Talk about uh, early Russian history and the development of the Russian eth- as an ethnic group, but also the development of the Russian state. In particular, I want you to focus on his understanding of the relationship between early Russia and the Mongol domination, because it, it, I think it really fits into his understanding of what his, the ethnic aspect of the Eurasian continent is, or Eurasia at, at large. So how did he understand Russia? What was his narrative of
0: Russian history? Well, he understood Russia as a multinational entity in a, in a political sense, but let me, uh, this is very much part of Eurasianism. Maybe we'll talk in a little while about Eurasianism, and that's very much this vision. But let me just explain quickly his take on this. And that is that he saw, so, the, so there was a, a Russian or kind of proto-Russian ethnos of, of ethically, ethically Russian people. And he, to to deal with Russian history, he said, and this is, a, again, he he is not being consistent here because he's very inconsistent. One of the reasons I'm so critical of him is that he's extremely inconsistent. And the case of the Russians is a good one because he says here there was not one life cycle. His term for life cycle, I should have said this earlier, is ethnogenesis. When he talks about ethnogenesis, he, he it's really referring to this 1,500-year period, this this Gumlyov graph that they go through. And he said this happened twice for Russian for the Russian ethnos it began sort of around the turn of the millennium at one point but then it there was a second one that started and this began and in the Kievan Rus if we begin there he locates this at a particular point in this development of the of the of the cycle where the ethnos is beginning to lose its energy beginning to decline and it was at this point that a from outside, another ethnic group came in and intruded into this. And this was the Mongols. This was the, the Golden Horde that then uh, conquered Kiev and Rus and destroyed it or whatever. He, he would not have agreed that it destroyed it, but that kind of took control. And then there was a kind of symbiosis that took place between these two groups. And modern Russia then is born out of this symbiosis. Now the controversy here it's a very very controversial point this and this very the, this is the most important thing I think about Gumilyov's story historiographically is this particular Eurasianist view of this very important phase or maybe all important phase in early Russian history which was the Mongol domination because the traditional History, the traditional historiography, and standard, and I think this is still the view. This has been the view for hundreds of years. I still still think it's this. It's the accepted view today. Is that this? They viewed this negatively. They viewed this very much that that is the 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 Genghis the the well, it was the grandson Batu who was the grandson of Genghis Khan and his conquest of Russia. uh, The city of Kiev fell in what was it, 1141. And and that was kind of the end of it. It had been going on for about two decades before then. And then Kiev fell and the Mongols occupied. And the Russian chronicles talk about the huge destruction and the histor- and the historians then talk about how damaging this was, how many people were killed, how much of Russian culture and civilization was destroyed, it lasted for about two and a half centuries. It was referred to as the Mongolska Iga, the Mongol yoke. And then eventually the Mongol power began to decline. The Russians won a symbolic victory against the Mongols. There was a, the field of Kulikova, a very famous battle in Russian history because this was the beginning of the decline of Mongol power. And then about a century later, the Mongols were Eliminated, their power was overcome, and Muscovy then began to emerge. Ivan the Terrible then began to construct the Russian Empire. Gumilyov takes a completely different view. He says that there was no opposition between the Mongols and the Russians. That in fact, these were two peoples of the steppe who shared a common destiny, who shared a common interests, and were really fraternal people. The real opposition was the Russians and the Bengals together shared a common enemy, and this was the West. The West which Russia was also fighting with at this time. Russia was also fighting with the Baltic barons, with Lithuania, with the Catholic Lithuania, Poland, where they were invading. There were many struggles going on at this time. And what Gumilyov argued was that, in fact, the Mongols and the Russians had come together. And they formed a political alliance, a military alliance. And it was, in some ways, and he was never completely clear about how, it was also an ethnographic alliance. Between them, and this, then you have the beginning, the birth of what is the modern Russian ethnos through this coming together and this partnership, if you will, or the term used, to, the term he used, symbio- symbiosis, a symbiosis between these groups. So this was his view. He viewed then that they, that they played a criti- critical role, the Golden Horde and the Russians, in aligning and kind of coming together, unifying in a way. To then overcome the opposition that they both faced from outside, sort of undertake almost together to build a great, to begin to build a great country and a great nation. This Kulikova battle, which is quite significant, is the iconic battle where, which is usually thought of as the Russians defeating the Mongols. Gumilyov rewrote the history of this battle. I've 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 looked a great deal. I've done, spent a great deal of attention just on this particular. Question and he rewrote this battle. And his argument is that, in fact, the Mongols and the Russians were allied in this battle; that there was no defeat; that they were allied in the battle opposed to a common Western foe. Yeah,
1: I want to go into this uh, this because he really laid his thought seems to be based in opposition to two things. First, you've already mentioned the anti-Westernism, but the other one that's really figures prominently in his whole understanding of Russia in general are Jews. What place does anti-Semitism have in his in his thought?
0: Well, unfortunately, I guess, it's, it's utterly foundational for what he was doing for, for pretty much everything that he wrote about. The Jews for him, I mean, if we talk about it in contemporary terms, they were the all-critical other, the opponent, the enemy. That gave meaning to everything else. I mean, that's a huge statement, but it's certainly true if you try to, if you get to understand the dynamics of, of Russian history. You have one of his great books about this. He subtitles, anyway, this, I, I don't remember, the, I'm trying to remember the, which was the main title, but the subtitle was Friends and Enemies on the Great Step. And this is basically how he understands it. You have friends and you have enemies. You have this kind of binary. And among Russia's enemies are the two that you're asking about. You have, on the one hand, the West talk about that in a moment, but the Jews. And of course, the difference here is that the Jews are internal. The Jews are the internal enemy. And so this, so if you want to understand Russia's problems, its development from the beginning, it has to be in terms of this ever-present threatening Jewish enemy, and this was true in the 10th century. It was true in Kiev and Rus, and it's very true. It was true in 1917, and it's true in the 1980s and the 1990s and the period that he lived in. Gumilev believed. I mentioned. Uh, I haven't spoken too much detail about his theory of ethnicity, but the one thing I want to add at this point is that he he understood you had uh, you had ethnic groups, but he had another. He had a, part of his theory was that ethnic groups could combine to form larger entities that are called super-ethnic groups. And he believed that the Jews were a super-ethnic group, not an ethnist, but, a, but a, a larger group. So there were different examples of it. There were different kind of versions of it, you might say, in different countries around the world. But they were super-ethnicists. This was something that opposed Russia and the West, as he understood it, it was a superethnus itself. It was a Romano-Germanic. He spoke in sort of Spenglerian, but also and he, This idea also comes from Nikolai Donelievsky from the 19th century, the Russian panslav, who had this idea as well. So it was the opponent of these superethnicity, And of course, Russia, together with the peoples of the steppe and with peoples of other parts of the empire, themselves formed a superethnist. So it was com- it was kind of conflicting. Very, and this is historical. So what I'm telling you relates to the 12th century in his view. This is how, this is how he wrote his history that I've just went through in terms of these super superethnic clashes. And the term clash here is very advisable because 20th century in our own day this resonates utterly with this notion that we have in our own midst of the clash of civilizations. This blends wonderfully into a Huntingtonian line in terms of understanding things today. So let's talk about his
1: reception which is a, one of the major aspects of your book. There's two places where he's taken up. First off is amongst Russian ethno-nationalists. Uh so how do how did Russian ethno-nationalists not only in the Soviet period but since What were they attracted to in in Gumilov's thought?
0: The term nationalist is a problematic term. You understand that. And and I, I don't want to become too worried about that. But it's significant here because I talk about his relationship to the nationalists of the Soviet period, which is a rather special group, a large group, a very important group of ethnic Russian intellectuals and writers and What, who, and also politics—they were—they were were present also in the in in political life to some extent. Who developed as a reaction, in a sense, to the the attempts of the Soviet state to encourage non-Russian ethnicities? What Terry Martin calls in his great book the affirmative action empire that is to encourage non-Russian ethnicities and so in the post stalin period there was a reaction against that of ethnic Russians who believed that the non-Russians had been taking advantage had been advantaged had been privileged had all sorts of benefits and whatnot that the, the Russians themselves had been denied so this developed into a very important a very big movement these people uh, for them and I have a whole chapter describe uh, exploring Gumilyov's relationship to these Soviet Russian nationalists and again here you have a very mixed story because on the one hand they were very appreciative. They liked Gumilyov a lot. They liked very many things about him. They liked his biological theories of ethnicity because it went it sort of supported very much their own thinking about the essential nature of ethnicity and sort of its biological character. They liked his religiosity, for example. He was always religious and, and fairly open about it. They appreciated that. He was a great spokesman for environmental conservation, and he talked about one of the crimes of communism was precisely that it led to the despoilation through these great works of industrial development. It had led to the despoilation of the Russian landscape and of sort of ancient Russian culture. And if you read the nationalist writers who never referred to Gumilyov, but they very much like uh, the, the Siberian Valentin Rasputin and others, also environmental destruction was very much a part of their concern as well. So they liked that. And most of all, I think what we've already been talking about, and that is his view of the Jews. So he became a very important voice talking. And here I should just say, because I don't think I mentioned this before, but let me just talk, specify in a moment how he wrote the Jews into Russian history. And he did that by looking at a particular uh, political uh, kind of kingdom or khanate that formed in the 8th century in the southern steppes around the in the Black Sea, sea littoral around the Volga, the mouth of the Volga. And these were the Hazars. This was a group of steppe, or many steppe groups that the Russians, that the ancient Russians were in contact with. The Hazars became a very powerful kingdom. They became a very conquering kingdom, but they're unique because among all of the different groups that the Russians had contacts with, the Hazars were at least reputed to be Jewish. They had, con- they converted to Judaism. This is very unclear. There's a great historical, historiographical debates about this. I mentioned Artamonov. Mikhail Artamonov, who was the head of the Erbitash, he was a great specialist on Khazar studies from the 1930s, a great Soviet specialist. Gumilyov learned his trade from Artamonov. So he then he himself became a specialist on the Khazars. And what Gumilyov argued then, in a word, uh, is that the Khazar Khanate never really converted to Judaism. They were just a normal steppe peoples who had been invaded by Jews that were migrating from other parts of Central Asia and they migrated in, and they took control over this Khazar Khanate, and so it became this kind of defective Jewish-controlled state. And he called—he this was this term he used—it was Khimyeta, a chimera, a chimera state. He, by the way, took this term from biology. So it became this kind of biological deformation that threatened early Russia, that threatened young Russia, that was eventually defeated by Russia. But the Jewish threat then that had been embodied by Hazaria in the 8th century, in the 9th century, in the 10th century, never went away. And it remained sort of subverted. And then it came up again in the 19th century and in the 20th century. And the Russian Revolution, he then takes up this notion of here it is once again, the Jews that have reemerged to threaten and to undermine and challenge the integrity of Russia. And so it's with his Hazar history that he becomes very useful because he's talking about anti-Semitism. He's talking about a particular narrative of pernicious Jewish influence that you could not speak about openly in the Soviet Union, but you could write about Hazaria. And there was a whole generation of nationalist historians. He was not the only one, but he was the leading one. And he was the most radical in his presentation of this particular perspective. And this was very important for the nationalists. And you have at least one very prominent, very important nationalist writer. This is Koshinov, who was a writer from Moscow, who himself began to write Hazar histories, kind of inspired by Gumilyov. Others began to as well. Koshinov was a particular outstanding one.
1: And the other influence that he had was on Eurasianism in Russia, and the Eurasianist movement. And and this really stretches the Eurasianist influence on Gumilyov begins really in the 1930s from the early Eurasianists of the interwar period. But he also inspires a new generation of Eurasianists in the 1980s. So where does he fit into in Eurasianism in general? And what attracts Eurasianists today to his ideas?
0: Well, Eurasianism, just very briefly, was a body of doctrines that began to develop in the 1920s and 1930s in Western Europe, actually, because it was developed by Émigré, uh, I mean, there are roots of it you can find in pre-revolutionary Russia that are quite interesting, but it actually began to emerge. It was the catharsis of World War I, but in particular the revolution and dislocation, whereas these intellectuals, these great, some, some very leading intellectuals, people like, um, Stravinsky was, the composer was influenced by it, to some extent. Roman Jakobson, the famous linguist at Harvard subsequently, was a member of the movement in a minor way for some time. A number of other, Nikolai Trubitskoy, Knyas Trubitskoy, Prince Trubitskoy, Piotr Savitsky, George Vernadsky, of course, was the historian for many decades at Yale University. Very, very illustrious group, a real pleiade of intellectual and sort of artistic cultural figures were part of this who had been the shock of emigration, had sort of compelled them into a new perspective on Russia, But the theory was that Russia was not a Western country, was not an Eastern country, was not a simple dichotomy between West and East. It was that Russia formed its own continental, subcontinental civilization. That was a mixture of Eastern and Western elements. These, of course, were counter-revolutionaries. These were bourgeois nationalists. Their writings, although they were very interested in the Soviet Union, some of them even visited and, and some of them repatriated in the 1930s, came back to Russia, where, of course, they they were, they were perished very quickly. But Gumilyov was interested from the 1930s. It might be that his mother's husband, Punin, had some of the books in his library. We don't quite know where he was reading these this contraband literature, but he had access to it, and he read it, and even then he was interested in it. Because he was very interested, and you kind of picked this up already from his narrative of the Mongols, he's very interested in the symbiosis, the connections, the positive connections, the, the good connections between the Russians and the peoples of the steppe. And so he becomes, uh, he, he very much embraces this idea of Eurasianism. Uh, Eurasianism was also a vociferously anti-Western perspective, and he takes this over as well. And in that sense, he's a very loyal Soviet citizen because he can very much embrace this idea of hostility from the West, the capitalist West in this case. And he takes this over. he, he He's very serious about this. And when he finally begins to establish himself in the late 1950s and late 1960s, he actually takes up a correspondence with one of the Eurasians, well, with two of them. But in particular, one with uh, Savitsky, the geographer and the economist, who by that time, Pyotr Savitsky, who was living in Prague, and he was able to establish a, he had a very long correspondence. He also corresponded slightly less with Vernatsky than George Vernatsky, uh, who uh, was in, um, Yale University. So, so Gumilyov had this contact with Eurasianists and he always claimed he always saw himself as a Eurasianist. And he one of his in what he sort of called himself in the nineteen eighties in one of his interviews, he said, They call me the last Eurasian Pasli Evraz, and I do not, I do not object. So this is very important. When Eurasianism begins to reemerge, and this is in the nineteen eighties as you say, and also in the nineteen nineties, Gumilyov is important for that in a number of ways, but very crucially really as a figurehead. And really someone who always talked about it, whose works reflect the spirit of Eurasianism, whose histories reflect that, although they're very quirky, actually, if you read the original Eurasian people like Vernadsky, if you read the original Eurasianist historiography. And he has this kind of connection, so he's seen as someone who's kept the idea alive. Where Gubeliev's ideas differ, I mean, I, I talk in my book a little bit about the original contribution that he made to Eurasianism today. Let's call it Neo Eurasianism. So we can talk, we know we're talking about post Soviet Eurasianism. And I would say his contribution was precisely his theory of ethnicity. Because the classical Eurasians never talked very much. Their interest was on a multinational association or assemblage. That was what Eurasia was. It was very emphatically polyethnic. And Gumuliov also thinks that way in terms of these super-ethnicity that he has. You have different combinations. But he also emphasizes the importance of, of ethnicity, of ethnic groups. And today, de- the sensitivities of today among Eurasianists, but even more broadly, is ve- very much is concerned with questions of ethnicity and ethnic identification. And here, Gumilyov is satisfying for them, because he talks about it and theorizes about it in a way that you would never find in the classical Eurasianist writings, who don't pay attention to that particular aspect. They don't emphasize it so much. The reason Gumilyov emphasized it had to do with when he was writing in the 1950s and the 1960s and what was going on politically than in the Soviet Union, and that's lost a little bit today. But just the fact of the of his emphasis on this point is very much I think is is a contribution, a sort of a special contribution he is making to neo-Eurasianist thinking.
1: He has, in the post-Soviet period, really been elevated as an important figure, and he's been praised and he's been recognized. There are monuments named after him. Putin has praised him for his extraordinary talents. What I want to ask is, in our popular discussions of Russian nationalism and Eurasianism in the post-Soviet period, you know, the, the articles you read in the, in, the, in the newspapers, there's a tendency to emphasize the influence of Alexander Dugin, And you hear less about Gumilov. So in terms of the legacy of Gumilov's thought, where does he fit vis-a-vis Dugan? Where would you place them in their influence.
0: No, that's obviously very, you know, Dugin, again, unfortunately, I would have to say very unfortunately, is a, uh, you know, is really a central figure here. That's absolutely correct. And I can talk about him and Gumulyov, but let me just uh, begin that by maybe going back to your question about Gumilyov and the Russian nationalists period, the 1970s, 1980s. And if we talk about Eurasianism, let's begin there. Gumilyov had a huge problem with these nationalists, and he was very bitterly attacked by them, also. And that was precisely because of what we're talking about now, that is his Eurasianism. And his Eurasianist and his Turkophilia, you might say, his interest in the steppe peoples, his genuine, absolutely genuine appreciation, respect, and knowledge of their cultures and of their contribution. This was something that these Russian nationalists who were precisely militant against The influence of these people, and in a sense had, 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 you know, their own consciousness was based on a sense of these people were their enemy, were their opponent, they found this absolutely unacceptable. This came to a head, sort of dramatically, I might say, in 1980, because in 1980, this was the 600-year anniversary of the Battle of Kulikova, I mentioned earlier, that this fateful battle with Russia, between Russia and the Golden Horde. And the this was a big celebration in the Soviet Union. For, it lasted for a long time. Many books, histories were written about it. It was a great kind of object of national mobilization. The Soviet Union had invaded Afghanistan in nineteen seventy-nine. Solidarity in Poland was beginning to move, and the this celebration around Kulikova was seen as a kind of a, a rallying point that the country could come around if you see what i'm saying. So there was it was quite emotive at the time. And here everybody and of course the, the 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 line was one of celebrating the great victory. This was the Russian victory over the forces of the occupier of the Golden Horde and the beginning of the consolidation of Russia. Gumilyov wrote a number of essays. They were quite short in fact they were very very brief but there was enough where he tried to present his own line that there was no War against the Mongols, there were no enemy here, these were fraternal kind of brotherly peoples, and this was very bitterly criticized. So his Eurasianism here, this Eurasianist view in the early 1980s, was very heavily attacked, and it meant that he was never really a part of the nationalists, as much as they liked the other things that he wrote about. If we fast forward from 1980 to 1990, 10 years later, and the scene among the temper among these Russian nationalists... Has changed completely, and what changed it is the Perestroika, the experience of Perestroika, and much more pointedly, the beginnings of the genuine fragmentation of the Soviet state along ethno-national lines. First, threatened by separatism, nineteen, you know, as as the separatist movements began to develop under Gorbachev, Uh, uh, I don't even, I shouldn't even call them separatists because they began not as separatists, just as affirmative movements. And then eventually they developed into separatist movements, and then eventually, of course, it happened. The country broke up along these lines. And under this experience, the these Russian nationalists began to understand, it clicked with them, that Eurasianism, classical Eurasianism, Gumilyovian Eurasianism, could be valuable as a new kind of non-Marxist now and non-Soviet ideology that can be the basis for the argument for maintaining geopolitical unity. So there was a remarkable shift from just in this 10-year period. And Gubilyov, who had been attacked for this 10 years later, not exactly the same people, but the same group of people, had much more space to think about Eurasianism and began to think about it very differently. And of course, as they did, Gubilyov then shifted from being a, you know, from being a Russophobe, which is what he was attacked at by the Nationalists then, now to being, of course, a, the, the keeper of this tradition. And, the, and, and he was the great kind of scholar who, could, who kept this alive and who could be the basis for the development of a new integrationist perspective, which could help to either maintain the unity of the Soviet Union, that failed, then somehow for some sense of re- reconstruction of a lost unity. Now Dugan who emerged very much out of the uh, I mean we know this now this because there's so much written about him but he emerged very much out of the of the extremist fringes the occult in the 1980s the underground movements and all sorts of extremist things in the 1990s he was very much into his extremist politics but he became interested in Eurasianism and he became converted to he accepted this idea he this notion of the Eurasianists he's a very careful and a very thorough sort of operator one thing that he did was to go to the old texts because the classical Eurasianists from the 1920s and 1930s had produced produced a great deal of texts. These were all lost. These had been archival. They were never really tolerated in the Soviet Union. He rediscovered these old texts and they were republished. So you have now the old, the classical Eurasianist uh, ideas coming into fresh circulation; these very nice new publications. I have to say, I was able to read certain things because of Dugan that I didn't know about. But he was he kind of found them and published them. So that was one thing that he was able to do. And a movement of Eurasianism b- began to become popular. It was very much publicized in papers like the Prahanov, uh one of the uh, conservative. Dean, it was called first in the early 1990s, then after the attack of Yeltsin on the parliament in 1993, the journal was renamed to the name it has today, a very influential journal, its so own right Zafra, or Tomorrow. And this was, became one of the, one of its leading themes was Eurasianism. Dugan then was given his own pages in this journal, and then, uh, and Eurasianism developed. Throughout the 1990s, it remained very much on the fringe, it was there, but it was it was very vocal. People like myself and my colleagues, who've always been interested in it, of course, picked up on it, and knew about it. But it was only when Putin came to power in 2000 that this began to shift, and it began to become more mainstream. And so Dugin then went from the—and he, he sort of made this declaration—he went from the—in the 1990s, he was collaborating with people like Limonov, the National Bolshevik Party, these very extremists. Then he called himself, uh, a in 2000, he said, now I support the radical Center, as he called it, the Radical Center, and this was Putin. So he became a supporter of Putin. Of course, Eurasianism now has developed into really a main plank for Putinism. Dugin venerates, as everybody does, he's not really special here, but he's very emphatic about this. He he venerates very much the, the legacy of Gumilyov and the memory of Gumilyov. And he sings his praises and he talks about Gumilyov as someone who gave Russia back, a thousand years of our history. He's given us back a thousand years of our history. You can go on YouTube. It's very interesting. Dugan's everywhere. You know, He's very, he's very media savvy. And he has lots of presence on YouTube and you can easily find, I mean, when I was do, writing my book, there was one, but there are probably numerous now lectures or talks or interviews where Dugan talks about Gumilyov and specifically talks about how important he was. You cannot understand, however, Neo-Eurasianism in terms of Gumilyov. You know, it's not as if he delivered the theories. I don't think that's the case. I think Gumilyov delivered a few important elements. I think the emphasis on ethnicity is quite important. Otherwise, he's a kind of a figurehead. He's this great scholar who produced that nobody can, he's sort of like a, um, like a Karl Marx. In a way you you don't question his authority, it's also like the Bible a little bit that is you can sort of find there what you want <laughs> you can look at you know or the or the collected works fifty five volumes of Vladimir Lenin right and you got to go to Lenin's collected works and you will find what you need and so Gumilyov also a little bit operates that way as well and finally, what
1: influence do you because there is a there is an article that just came out a few days ago talking about the influence of Dugan. In the sense that his book, uh, geopolitics—I forget the the whole title—is
0: yeah, right, right. Asmofi, as the fundamental of geopolitics, mostly and think, through space. Right, it is a is a textbook
1: used in um, training in, I think, the interior ministry or something like this.
0: That's right. Yeah, yeah, and and in the in the military academies. Yeah, yeah. That's my understanding too. Yes.
1: So, what influence does? Gumilov's ideas have on, say, various various elements of the Russian elite,
0: including Putin. Well, you can't compare Dugin and Gumilyov in this sense, because Gumilyov was a, was a scholar, he was a historian, and his right and because partly because of his own inclination, and partly because of the the needs of Soviet sort of censorship and how this was done in the Soviet Union. He tended to write about very remote and obscure subjects. And you have to kind of read him under, you know, between the lines or underneath the, the paper or however you want to say it. This was something the Soviet his Soviet readership was very aware of and very able to do and it was it worked perfectly effectively. But it means that if one looks at his work today, I mean some of this meaning I think is lost and his his books are simply not programmatic in the way. So for example, it's a very interesting contrast part picking up on what you were just talking about. Dugin, uh, I don't know if you've read his book. I I know it quite well, the the book on the, the Osnovi geopolitiki. This is a programmatic statement of Russian policy. He talks about the history. He talks about the history of these geopolitical ideas. Then he talks about what does this mean for Russia today. And he kind of presents, the book was written in the late 1990s. So, I mean, it is dated in that sense. But its message is quite clear. And, you know, it's something that you could study in a military academy. It would make sense. He has lots of maps talking about you know, China and Iran and the West and so on and so forth. Gumilyov's book is also mandated publicly, but it's a rather different story. And this is a synopsis he wrote of his history of Russia that was called, in the, it's called From Rus, from Kiev and Rus to Russia. This is a his historical work and it's a synopsis of a very uh, of his historical work. And this is a textbook that is used now in the ninth year. I think it's in the it's in the high schools and they use this te- this is an officially approved textbook. He got an award for it from the Duma in, in 1995, I think, and it became a, a an officially approved textbook so it's used. But there's nothing programmatic in it if you see what I'm saying. I mean and the only thing you can take from this of course is this underlying thick Anti-Semitism. That would, in the, in the, in the guise, in the book of Hazaria. But this would be taken away, but there's nothing programmatic. And when, Pu- and Putin, specifically him, he is not taking ideas in the sense that Dugin is trying to feed him ideas. Dugin is trying to tell Putin what he should be doing in Ukraine. You understand? And, and Putin doesn't do it. You know that. There's a, there's a problem with Dugin, and Dugin has been demoted a little bit. He was too radical, you know, blah, blah. Okay. Well, you understand. But you see, that's the level at which and, but at, by the same token, I think Putin, Dugin, for many years, was, was promoted precisely because of that. He he provided this kind of direct ideological material that could be useful in some ways. Gumelioff isn't like that at all. He's a historian. He does, Even his writing on ethnicity, you've got to read it pretty carefully and critically to kind of begin to come up with, you know, what does this mean in terms of operationally, what does it mean? But Gumilyov is a figurehead, and this is part of his power, is that he's this object of veneration, and one can talk about him, his sort of system of ideas, without terribly specific reference to what the ideas actually are. One of Gumilyov's great contributions is this lexicon he came up with. And again, I mentioned in the beginning his literary gifts. One thing he did do, he writes in a very engaging way. This is one thing that made him very popular. But he came up with a series of words. He invented words and a lexicon. He took words from natural science. He read very avidly in natural science. He took words like symbiosis, which was originally uh, from biology, I think. And he uses this then in his history. But he makes up words. And he made up a word to describe this special affinity between ethnic groups when they're friends. And that word is complementarnist, complementarity. And so this is a Gumilyovian word that refers to a special affinity. So, that of course, the Tatars and the Russians had this complementarnist. The other term, and this I mentioned the term because this is one that Putin has recently used, and people use this all the time. This is the term passionarnist, which you probably have heard of. And it's very, you know, what he meant by that's really kind of complex. It's very sort of scientific. But the term is a very evocative one. I think even for you, you know, even for us, who are not native Russian speakers, we can hear how that term might sound nice. Now it's used in Russia simply as some term for the special energy or the enthusiasm that motivates people. And Putin then, just talking about Putin and Gumilyov, in his federal address, he makes them every, you know, State of the Union, right? He makes it once a year. He says, and I quote him, to speak in the words of Liev Gumilyov, if Russia is to succeed in the future, it will need to speak in the terms of Lebugulioff to mobilize its passionatomist. So that term, and it's not the only one there, and the term Chimera that we mentioned earlier, Chimera, is another term that is used very, very widely and becomes detached a little bit from its Gumilyovian meaning, although it's always associated with Gumilyov, but sometimes meaning very different things than than what he, than what he implied.
1: That was Mark Basson, professor in the School of Historical and Contemporary Studies at Södertorin University in Stockholm. His most recent book is The Gumilov Mystique, Biopolitics, Eurasianism, and the Construction of Community in Modern Russia. If you'd like to submit a question, please go to seansrussiablog.org and click on Submit a Question. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, Like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. You can also support the podcast by making a donation to seansrussiablog.org. A big thanks to those who've contributed. You can find past shows on iTunes, Mixcloud, and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org. Until next time, bye.